Hi there, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Cover with me, Jeff Ayers, and our awesome co-host, John Robb. John, how you doing? I'm doing good, and I just want to let you know that I'm doing this interview from a train because I'm dedicated because I have to talk to Linwood, and this is why I'm very excited to be on here talking to the train, baby. That's, that, that's, what, that's how we roll here. That's how well, we roll. I was going to say, it's, it's actually we're training you, but uh, we'll, we'll get into that later. Oh, God, that was nice fun, dude, nice fun. Definitely top shelf material here, I can tell. Yeah, hey, dad jokes, I'm here all week. Uh, I feel feel a lot of love on this call, just to let you know right now. A lot of love here. Well, today we have the awesome thrill to interview New York Times bestselling author Linwood Barclay. Linwood, how are you doing today? I'm just doing great. You guys are good? (laughs) We're doing yeah, good. Thanks so much. Thanks good. so much for coming well, on, man. Things are good here. I'm uh, I'm talking to you from uh, Toronto, and uh, it's been kind of wet here today, but otherwise very nice. Nice. It's uh, it's been 85 degrees here in Seattle, which is a little unusual, but um, yeah, cool. Enjoy the rain while you can have it. <laughs> That's right. And I love. Well, Seattle, you're kind of used to that sort of thing. Exactly, and we miss it. Um, oh, so, but your new novel coming out on September 17th is Elevator Pitch. Could you talk a bit about what's going on with that? I sure can. It's funny, when I, when I was sending a note to my publishers about what I was going to write next, I had Elevator Pitch at the top of the page, and I said, that's the actual title. It's kind of like, remember that Seinfeld episode where Kramer decided to do a coffee table book on coffee tables? So this Elevator Pitch... The elevator pitch for elevator pitch is uh, about a guy who, New York has a different kind of a serial killer. We have someone who's going around, perhaps seemingly at random, we don't know yet, but is sabotaging elevators throughout Manhattan. And to the point that on the first day that it happens, people think, well, that was a terrible, awful accident. And when it happens on day two, they think, well, that's a bit of a coincidence, but still. But then by the time it happens on day three, it doesn't take a genius to figure out there's a pattern here. And in a vertical city like New York, when the entire city gets told, don't take the elevator, you better take the stairs, things pretty much come to a halt. That's terrifying because we all use elevators all the time. The thing about elevators, I think, is what I discovered having written this and talking about it with people is that it freaks out so many people. I didn't realize how many people are freaked out by elevators. But I think what's happened is that elevators present an intersection of phobias. There's, there's a claustrophobia. There's uh, fear of heights, fear of falling, loss of control. They all seem to come together in an elevator. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I figured I was like, great, he did the elevators what, you know, Jaws did to the ocean. Yeah, that's the plan. I want to do for elevators what Psycho did for the for, for showers, you know. I mean, from the, and, and, and it's, I think we should look at it as it's kind of a public service. What I'm doing here is I'm going to be encouraging people to take the stairs more than they ever have before. Everybody's going to get healthier. It's just I did this out of love. It's what I did. So forty-five so flights this, later. Hey, you know, so this could be the next chapter in the in that new Cato diet. Don't take the elevator, take the stairs. There you go. But what if you work on the 60th floor? You know, just leave yeah, that earlier. Yeah. Hey, it's a fire drill, baby. Run down the stairs. 
down's fine. It's up that's the problem. Well, you know, I had a blast writing this book. It was just, it was just so much fun to do, and you know, well, uh, including a bit of, uh, including a bit of the research that involved. I went this wonderful guy who was in charge of the elevators at a huge skyscraper office building in Toronto. I asked him if he could sort of, you know, through a friend, asked if he could kind of show me around. And I was really afraid that once I told him why I wanted to know all about the elevators, he would kind of suddenly clam up and wouldn't want to talk about it. But when I said to him what I'm doing, he was like, he got so excited. He said, oh, yeah, I know how to kill people with an elevator. And he just got totally into it. And, uh, but, but it was really interesting. The, the most interesting thing was that, and this is in the book. So he took me into this room where sort of all the elevator functions are housed and there's computers and there's all this stuff. And he's holding in his hand what looks like a really large TV remote. It looks sort of like one of those, maybe like one of those phones that you would see in the first episodes of the X-Files or something, you know, a big clunky thing. And he says, with this device, I can control every elevator in the building and everything that it does. And I thought, wow, I said, boy, I guess it'd be hard to get one of those. He says, oh, no, you can get one on eBay for 500 bucks. And that's when I thought, I got a story here. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, that's just, that, that's terrifying alone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I'd be the first to admit, I may have taken a few liberties, and, and, and Mike, in, in my, this book, you might be able to do even more with that little device. But it's a real thing. It's a real device, and it's really used for this purpose. And I just thought, that's just amazing. You know, because, you know, we, look, we, we, we see a lot of thrillers. You think back to the first Mission Impossible movie, and somebody just has some device, you know, and this device will do the following. Like, this will bring down every airplane in the world by pressing a few buttons. And you just sort of think, oh, okay, I'll accept that. But you know that no device like that exists. But in this book, this one, it's for real. This really is a thing like this. Well, that was kind of one of my questions, too, was about the research, because you had to have gone deep into this, because just the, I mean, just kind of how you layered this, uh, this book together with so many different kind of moving parts, um, I, I thought that that was ingenious. Well, thank you. Thanks. It was fun. And there's plenty of red herrings in this book, and there's plenty of people to look at, you know, who might be behind it, and plenty of reasons for it to happen. And so there's kind of a lot of balls in the air with this, and... Uh, and the book kind of follows two, well, three protagonists, but two, two cops working together and also uh, my sort of main character, a woman named Barbara Matheson, who's uh, a political columnist, but she writes online instead of newspapers, and she follows New York politics. And we really are with her for a good part of the book. And, um, but uh, she was fun to write about, and so was the mayor. We have created a mayor for, for uh, a new mayor for New York City who's... Uh, uh, kind of objectionable character, um, but even he has his moments. Well, I have to say, Linwood, though, that your characters, even the protagonists, have a diabolical edge to them, and I'm wondering why. Well, I think. Well, I. I mean, I hadn't really thought about that. The, the question that you're putting it, but I don't think if a character, I don't think characters are all that interesting if they don't have an edge to them. And and I think that uh, certainly in New York City, I think everybody's got a bit of an edge to them. And these characters are all sort of no exception to that, you know, in, in this novel. But I think that it's it's good when you have, you know, several characters that have, as you say, kind of an edge to them, and they start bumping up against each other. And that's when you start to get, 
interesting conflict and fireworks and 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 fun dialogue you know of people kind of of bouncing off each other so i think you need that especially in a thriller i would agree and that works really well in this book too mm-hmm. yeah you know and i sent you my short review and, and i'll say it on the air which is you know linwood is a master by the damn book um and the <laughs> yes. reason i say it, I, I, I mean all I, you need to say. yeah that's what you email that you're like that's all you need to say um but, and so, and the reason why I say that, too, is because what you did, I think, in the first half, maybe like the first third, is you brought me along kind of a little slow, and then all of a sudden it was like it just flipped, and then it just took off. Did you mean for that pacing to kind of be that way? Well, I think that all thrillers have a kind of sense of momentum. I think it's hard to stop, I think it's hard to start a thriller with your, you know, pedal to the metal with, with your foot to the floor. I mean, I think maybe you can have a bit of a prologue, as I do, that sets up something, but then you have to have a bit of a breather then, and kind of build up the steam and, and build up the momentum. And so I think you're right. I think that, I think it's really at the beginning, like the book is divided into five days, starting with Monday, and I think it's really kind of around the beginning of Tuesday when there's the second incident that things really start to take off. And, uh, but I think, you know, I mean, we still got, there's an opener to that book where something rather catastrophic happens. And my hope is that by the time you've gotten to the end of page 10 or whatever it is, that you'll be hooked. Um, for the record, the AP reviews I write have a certain word count I have to match, and nine words isn't going to cut it. So <laughs> just letting you know that in advance. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the master of the damn book. I mean, I can expand a little bit about that. I mean, you know, Linwood is a master. Buy the damn book. You're just a fucking idiot to so stop reading thrillers. How about that? That's right. That's right. That's, now and I can expand it for you. Just keep, just keep going. I think you can say the same thing over and over again. Well, you know what's funny is I used to, I was, used to be a newspaper columnist, and when I, I would write columns, and they would be about 630 words was kind of my, what I aimed for. And now I don't have that outlet, so I tweet, and I do 280 characters. So if I have an idea, rather than write 630 words, I do 280 characters, which tells me now that the columns were vastly overwritten. Well, I, I would disagree with you, but... <laughs> well, I have to ask you, why did you move away from suburban thrillers and the town of Promise Falls to tell stories in New York? That's a good question. I had done, you know, I, I did um, before, well, actually, the novel, even before Elevator Pitch, it was a book called A Noise Downstairs, and that novel was not a Promise Falls book. But the four novels that preceded it, that was Be Broken Promise, Far From True, The 23, and Parting Shot, they were all Promise Falls. And uh, I did quite a bit there. And I felt kind of like I kind of had kind of enough of Promise Falls for at least for a while. And, uh, and I was also kind of uh, professionally, I was going with a new publisher. And they were kind of encouraging me, well, let's do something. If you're coming over to us, let's do something that you haven't done before. And that's that. And the first book in, in that was A Noise Downstairs, which was last year's book. So, I may or may not come back to Promise Falls. I don't know. Um, and there were a few other books. I think there were three other ones uh, going back even further that had took, take, took place there. There was Too Close to Home, uh, Never Look Away, and uh, Trust Your Eyes just sort of takes place in, in 
Promise Falls, but it's not very important where it is. But uh, it may have a, you know you never know you may have a new life. I mean, Promise Falls uh, is in the, that that trilogy that I of uh, of, of um, Broken Promise Far from True and the Twenty Three. Those are in development for a possible TV series, and I'm Ooh. writing the pilot. And I've just handed in the second draft of the pilot. I'm involved in the project, and you know, and I'm not. I, you know, I've been here before where you think something's going to happen and it doesn't. So we'll see if it happens. But I mean, if it if it happened and if it became you know a hit and so forth, maybe that would make draw me back to Promise Falls and do more of them. So, but that's a sort of long term thing we'll have to look at. Cool. Okay. Wow, that's that's very cool. I didn't even know about the the, the TV thing going on with that. Do you, well, it's with, is it, is I'm it, doing it with um, I'm doing it with Entertainment One, who have a big uh, office here in Toronto where I am. So. And we have um, some. Uh, I can't. I'm not, I'm not able to say which one, but we have some network interest, and so we're we've been talking to them, and we'll see what happens. You know, like it's it uh, it could it. I hope fingers crossed. But uh, like I say, I've been uh, involved in possible series and things before, and put a lot of work into it, and then they don't happen. And that's kind of the story that everybody I know who's worked in that kind of business is very familiar with. I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, you, if you get a book contract. A book comes out, but when you start working TV, you can spend a lot of time on something that never materializes. Right, that's for sure. I don't think a lot of people realize that just because you hear something is in, you know, going around, you, you, it might sometimes it might get done, and then they shelve it, and then you just never see it. Like they have movies that they shot, but they've never come out, or series and stuff that are just sitting there, and you just you have no reason why. It's just kind of frustrating, I think, especially for like an author. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have a friend, another friend who writes thrillers, and and this is his story to tell, so I wouldn't say who it is, but he said, you know, they spent, he said they spent, I don't know what it was, like $5 million shooting a pilot based on one of his books, but it never happened. And uh, and that happens a lot. I mean, I was I was involved two years ago in an adaptation of my book, Trust Your Eyes, for TV, and, and spent six months working on it with a big name director and so forth and then finally the network that was interested said nah I don't think we'll do it so <laughs> it's just like okay I mean I'm lucky there's two things of mine have actually made it to a screen they did they made a TV series in France a six-parter out of my book The Accident and did a lovely job on it and then here in Canada it hasn't been distributed beyond yet um, we did a movie based on my novel Never Saw It Coming and I wrote the screenplay for that. And Eric Roberts is in it, Emily Hampshire. And it's a nice little film. It's a tight little thriller. But, um, you know, we'll see. We'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed on Promise Falls. Well, why, why can't I see these things? I have to move to Canada or France? What's the deal? Well, <laughs> well you know, <laughs> if you want to move to Canada, you're going to have to take a number. Um, oh, I hear that. <laughs> I think... I think I'm getting requests just about every day. Can I please come up and live with you? But we don't have to. I think the line to get into uh, Canada is longer than the line to Costco in Shanghai right about now. (laughs) You heard that story. (laughs) That's right. Um, But, yeah, well, hoping that the uh, the movie will get some wider distribution at some point. You'll be able to see it. The last time I looked, I don't know if it still is, actually the French series is available. There's a streaming service. I think it's based in the U.S. or it's available. They're called Acorn TV. And it is available on that with subtitles. Oh, okay. I'll check that out. Yeah. Cool. Very yeah. cool. Now, when you sit down and, and you're going to, you know, you decided you're going to do Elevator Pits, so you kind of got away from Palmas Falls, you're going to kind of do the standalone. 
what what kind of dragged you to to the typewriter first? Was it the characters? Was it the story? What was kind of materializing first that really got you excited about wanting to sit here and write this book? Well, I was going to say what really drags you to the computer every day is often is a contract, um, <laughs> you know, that you have signed. That's true. Meeting to but, eat, uh, I know that. Uh, but start, aside from that, well, I mean, when you do, I mean, I write a book a year generally, and when you are doing an, one book a year, you really don't have a whole lot of time to dawdle and sort of uh, about it and put it off. So I just get, when I have an idea, an idea I like that I think is going to make a good book, I just get to work and I do, my goal is I sit down in the morning and I hope to get 2,000 words done. And if I can do that, that's 10,000 words in a week and in two and a half months you have a first draft. And then you give that to your agent or your editor and you see what they think, and then you spend, depending on how good that first draft is, you spend another month or two or less, whatever, on a rewrite. And then you've got book tours, and you've got promotion, and you've got all sorts of things to do. So you really don't have a whole lot. You know, what motivates you in the morning is this has to get done. And you know, you're always hearing about people often at events always ask, hey, do you get writer's block? And I think, Aren't writers so precious that only our profession has an actual symptom or whatever, a diagnosis, to not get your work done? You know, I mean, is there plumber's block? It's just sort of... And I think because I spent uh, three decades working in newspapers. I mean, if you work at a newspaper and you go to, you, to the city editor and say, you know, I've got reporter's block. I just can't... I just can't... You know, like, you'll be working... You're not going to be working at that paper for very long. So I just look at writing as a job. You just get to sit down in the morning and just get to work. Uh, since you're writing screenplays now and you're working on the books, how do you juggle your day trying to keep all these different things in the air and straight? Well, sometimes they do kind of bunch up, and other times they don't. And and I do have to kind of watch my time management. I mean, I... I had promised to do uh, a screenplay adaptation for one of my books sort of on spec for a producer and, and who didn't really need it until um, like January or February. But I looked at my fall and what all the things that I had to do and I thought, if I leave this until November, December, it's not going to get done. So I did it over the last few weeks. I thought, I'm going to get it out of the way now because I have all this other stuff that's coming. So I kind of manage my time and look at what's coming and try to get things out of the way if I can um, so I can get those things done. And, uh, and in fact, I mean, I may have a whole new book I've got to write sooner than I planned because I had, you know, I had delivered a novel that I tended to be the book that would be next year's. And then I stupidly told my editors what I was thinking of writing next, and they thought the idea was so fantastic. They said, you should really do that one next. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> I think the one I already had done is going to get bumped a year, and I may do the other one, so they're going to give me more time, and I'll, guess, well, I'll probably have to get that done by March. I haven't written, even written the title page for that yet. But, oh, my goodness. But I do have to kind of manage things. And, and, and the thing about, you know, I mean, I guess at first this is sort of drove me crazy, but now it's a blessing. When I do anything for TV, I find that, that television just moves glacially. So, you know, you can do a rewrite of a draft or do a proposal and you send it in and it takes literally weeks sometimes for everybody who else who wants to weigh in on it to make up their mind and say what they think about it or what they want. So when I hand something like that in, I think I know I have at least two weeks to work on something else. So 
that that you know at first that drove me crazy that it moves so slowly and now I look at it and think that's just fine take your time because I have other stuff to get done cool I so I got a question here because you have a decapitation in the book I'm not gonna say where when what happens but I'm gonna say I'm just gonna ask though did you when you wrote that scene the first time was that the way it came out or did you change it which kind of a scene I didn't quite catch the word Oh, I'm sorry. I said you have a decapitation happening a in your book. Decapitation. I do have that, yes. Yeah, so I was wondering, is that the way you first wrote it, or did you kind of write it and then say, you know what, I need to do a little bit more? Oh, no, that was the first. That, that particular chapter that you're referring to, that chapter in the rewrite, didn't, I hardly changed the word of that. That was the way that one went the first time. I mean, I, that, you know, there's... there's um, and without giving too much away to people, just think about what happens if your elevator stops between floors and you manage to get the doors open. And you think, well, I can just crawl up to the landing of that floor and get out. But then what happens if in the middle of that process the elevator starts to move? And that's probably the very first scene I thought of before I had written anything in that book. And I thought, but I thought it's not going to be the first chapter. I'm going to save it for a while. But yeah, that's that, no. That scene was that's how I first thought about it. Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> know, man. Well, uh, let's just say I'm not. I should not... seek help. Pardon? Dude, I yeah, love I, the I'm way not... I love I love the way your mind works. I'm just telling you that right now. That was awesome. <laughs> man, no elevators, not going to moon. I think that that probably I, at my heart, I'm kind of an anxious person, and I'm always seeing what will go wrong. You know, in just everyday kind of circumstances. Like, I'm the kind of guy who always puts the steak knives point down in the cutlery tray of the dishwasher. Because, you know, I'm not going to reach in there and have it slip my wrist. So I'm always looking at sort of things that can go wrong. And That is too funny and, because I literally tell my wife the same thing. I say, do not stick the knives up. I'm not sticking my hand in there and getting it sliced off. No, I know. You've got to do that. You know, and I remember years ago, I mean, I had a real thing about I think there's a, something in one of my books about that very issue. And then there was an episode of Lost where someone broke into a house in one of the flashbacks, broke into a house and tripped over uh, in the dark an open dishwasher door and fell on the cutlery basket and the knives were in there pointed up. And I looked at them and I thought, you guys just ripped me off or something. I mean, that just, I've had that <laughs> idea for so long. <laughs> oh. Great, and I have to do the dishes after we're done talking. Um, yes. <laughs> thanks for this too. Good God, scare the hell out of me every hey, time if, I talk. At to least you. you're not doing. Hey, at least you're not doing the dishes in an elevator. So be happy about that. That's, no, that, this is true. That's, this is something that I, I I definitely recommend against. Do not load a dishwasher in an elevator. <laughs> well, I, I do have to ask. This is sort of a question. Um, that I don't think you've been asked before. What is it about the UK covers as opposed to your US versions that the UK ones are so much cooler and more colorful? Well, it's, you know, and it's not the first time I've been asked. People often ask, why are the colors, you know, covers different? Or why don't they all okay. come out at the same time? I mean, you know, I mean, this book comes out on September 5th in the UK and it comes out in North America on the 17th. So I get emails like, well, why is that? That's not fair. <laughs> you know, like there's so many <laughs> factors involved. 
but but the thing is, there's just you know. First of all, I have separate publishers. I have a different publisher in the U.S. and a different to, to what I have in the U.K. And and every publisher brings kind of their own sensibility to how they do things. And and I don't know quite how to define it. I find that that uh, U.K. covers generally to me are subtler. They're more subtle but there's kind of more subtext in them or something, whereas the U.S. covers are often far more direct. And I can't say that sort of blanket is that way, but I tend that sense, that's somehow how it strikes me. And, and I like both these covers for elevator pitch. I think they're both neat, but the, the blue one, which is predominantly blue, the U.K. one, kind of pops a bit and uh, has an image of somebody, a woman in an elevator, a glass-walled elevator. It's just very tiny. Yes. But I think they both work really well. But they're, they are different. There's a totally different sensibility to them. And, uh, and I cannot quite explain why that is. But they do have a... You know what it's probably... It's just that I think that, that generally we have this sense that the, you know, that the Brits are a little more conservative. Or they, you know, it's, it's the difference between having coffee and tea. I mean, coffee riles you up. And they don't have coffee as much as we do. Maybe that's it. Oh, oh I like that. Um, so, Linwood, tell us tell us where we can find you on uh, social media and stuff. Well, I've got a Facebook author page, uh, which is easy enough to find, and I am on Twitter. I'm on Twitter a lot. So you can find me on Twitter. It's just Linwood Barclay, and uh, you can find me there. I've got I, – I, I, I finally got myself onto Instagram, but I haven't posted anything on it in ages. I haven't got my head around how to make use of that yet. But Twitter is where you can, where I ha- where you'll see me the most, and as I said, and there's also I have this LimitedBarkley.com is the website, and uh, between all of those, I'm posting um, everything about the upcoming tour because I'm on tour most of of September. I'm gone on a 10-day UK tour and uh, Ireland, and then I'm back, and I think I have just enough time to have a shower, and then I'm on a, a, sh- a quicker a quick five-day US tour. And uh, and all that stuff I'm posting pretty regularly, so people can uh, know where they can come out and find me. The UK one's going to be fun because uh, I've got one event where I'm on stage chatting with Ian Rankin, and then later towards the end of the tour, I've got an evening one night chat or one afternoon chatting on stage with Mark Billingham, and uh, that's going to be an awful. Both of those events are going to be an awful lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Mark Billingham cracks me up every time I talk to him. Oh, he's, cracks me up. He's so funny. He's, he's so yeah. freaking he's funny. funny too, but Mark, you know, Mark has his history as a as a stand-up guy at one time, and uh, but they're both very funny guys, and so it's it's just going to be a lot of fun. I envy Mark because I think both I think both those guys. I mean, they at one time or other have had a band. I figure that every writer now is supposed to have been in some kind of a band, and I've never have been. So I don't know. It's kind of just one of my many failings. <laughs> Well, we got to get you in a band, and we also have to get you to Seattle sometime. So I also come. I want to get out to Seattle again. I've been. I think I've hit Seattle either once or twice on actual tours, and then we went out there for a week's vacation. Uh, we have very good friends who live in Seattle, and uh, and he's a scientist, and he's he's just a brilliant guy. And when I was writing um, a book called The Twenty Three, I said to him, "How would you poison an entire town?" And he looked at me for roughly 10 seconds, and he said, oh, yeah, I know how to do that. So I thought, <laughs> I need to talk to you. <laughs> we're, sitting, we're sitting in a Starbucks in Seattle, which, of course, doesn't in any way narrow it down. But we were sitting in a Starbucks in Seattle, 
and we're both on laptops and we're hooked into the Wi-Fi there and we're, we're calling up all these things about how to poison all these people and we keep thinking at any point, at any moment, the FBI is going to burst in through the door and arrest us. But uh, <laughs> somehow it didn't happen. Oh, that's awesome. That would have been great, though, if it happened. Yeah. Yeah, well, Linwood, um, we want to thank you again for taking the time to chat yeah. with us today. Uh, the book Thanks Elevator comes out on the 17th. Go get this book. It is great. Well, I appreciate thank you again. I'm grateful to you guys for giving me a chance to talk about it. Always, Linwood. Anytime you Always. need anything, you give us a call. Let us know. All righty. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Thank you, man. You have a great one. Take care. Bye.